so I think um, I've gone in this journey and the practices that I've written about are really ones that I use every day uh, because I want to move beyond surviving mm-hmm. as a person of color. I, I do want to be in thriving and I do believe that all of the freedom fighters and racial justice movements have fought for this moment. They've dreamed of us. Our ancestors have dreamed of this moment of us actually having this conversation and then making these commitments. It's not that we're not on the streets anymore. It's just like liberation is a very inside job. And, you know, Rosa Parks knew that. She did yoga and asana. I mean, there are so many people in the racial liberation movements who knew that there was something really important about nourishment, about building trust, and about actually healing from racial trauma so that we're not continuing to enact the wounds as a white person, you know, acting out of the wounds of numbing and then enacting white supremacy or in being an agent or as a person of color, as a BIPOC person, acting out of our own internalized racism or and or the distrust that we can have of our own selves. So I think the most powerful DEI work we can do on our campuses is really when we create spaces where people do learn to trust themselves. They learn more about their fullness of their identities and about history. You know, as I said earlier, everything about racism and white supremacy and cisgenderism, it will just be confusing unless you know about history. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Rochelle Pope. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope that you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. So find us at studentaffairsnow.com, on YouTube, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Stylus is proud to be a sponsor for the Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. Use promo code SANOW for 30% off all books plus free shipping. You can also find Silas on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Stylus Pub. Today's episode is sponsored by Leadershape. Leadershape partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in-person for students and professionals, with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadershape offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, please visit www.leadershape.org slash virtual programs or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Rochelle Pope. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm broadcasting from Williamsville, New York, near the campus of the University at Buffalo, where I serve as the Associate Dean for Faculty and Student Affairs and the Unit Diversity Officer for the Graduate School of Education. I'm also an Associate Professor in the Higher Education and Student Affairs Program. 
You be is situated on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Haudenosaunee people. As many of you know, this is my inaugural episode as a host for Student Affairs Now. And I am thrilled, absolutely thrilled to have Annalise Singh as my first guest. Annalise is an associate provost, a counseling psychologist, a scholar, an activist, a consultant. And before all of that, she was also the director of multicultural affairs at Agnes Scott College. So she clearly knows student affairs. Annalise, thank you for joining me today for this episode of Student Affairs Now. And welcome to the podcast. Can you begin by telling us a bit about you, your current role on your campus, and a bit about your pathway through student affairs, maybe, and certainly counseling psychology, and into the DEI, the diversity, equity, inclusion work that you now do? Yeah. Oh, thank you, Rochelle. It's so good to be with you. Thank you for all the work you do in our field. And it's a real honor to spend some time with you today. My name is Annalise Singh. I use the she and they series of pronouns. And I am in New Orleans uh, on Chitimacha and many other indigenous tribes lands that were also unseated and often stolen. The, the original indigenous name for New Orleans was Bulbancha. And so if you just even say that, you feel the power of, of this land uh, that is very Black and Indigenous in the roots of what we've come to know as New Orleans today. I serve as Chief Diversity Officer at Tulane University. And you're right, I've had kind of this interesting winding road through student affairs. I did my training as a counselor and psychologist, but when I was um, kind of done with a practicum in counseling at Agnes Scott College, um, they asked me, because I did a lot of work, not in a counseling office, but to do, I think if you do good counseling center work, you're out on the campus. Mm -hmm. And so they asked me to come in and do the director of multicultural affairs, which was actually just 20 hours a week. And I knew I would be there just a year. And I was like, hmm, I have some privilege I can spend here. I was like, I'll do it for a year if you let me work so that this is a 40-hour position and you actually hire someone. So I learned so much in that year. And when I went to the University of Georgia and became an assistant professor there, I worked in a doctoral program that blended uh, school counseling, community counseling, and student affairs. So we had this social justice discussion from K through 12, all the way to higher ed and beyond. And really like, what are the things that in higher ed we need to know that happen in elementary? What are the gaps and how does white supremacy work in middle school? And how does that impact what we see in universities? And so I think in terms of my work, the last um, 20 years has really been uh, focusing mostly on trans and non-binary community members, uh, their experiences of resilience and liberation. Um, Not your everyday resilience. I think sometimes we're like, no, resilience, it's a bad thing. (laughs) Like it's resistance. Yes, but I don't study everyday resilience. Like what happens when you don't get your coffee just right in the morning and you're stressed. I study the resilience that queer and trans people of color develop to navigate societal oppressions. And so a lot of my work has focused on race and racial justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so then I landed in an associate dean position for diversity, equity, inclusion in the College of Ed at the University of Georgia. And in that work, um, my dean had asked me to come in and uh, he said, we need a scholar to do this work. And I was like, really? Okay. Um, And, you know, in my head, I was like, I don't want to do this work. I'm a faculty member. I have freedom. I want to be in community. Um, I wasn't trying to spend time, honestly, in the university. But there was something in my heart that burst open and said, yes. 
And I think for many of your listeners, I've come to learn and really have so much respect for people in student affairs who've had very specific pathways into the profession, that there is a calling. And I guess I heard it that day and I was invited into the fold. So again, it's such an honor to be with you all and excited about the conversation. Wow. Um, your, your pathway, um, surprisingly enough, is like so many in student affairs. You didn't know the field existed necessarily, like in my case. And then when I found it, I was like, I was home. But that this work is so much broader than any one single functional area. You know, so I want to talk about this work that you're doing with DEI. You know, for decades, campuses have been discussing and programming around and providing interventions on diversity or inclusion or multiculturalism or racism, and more recently using the language of white supremacy. Yet research has shown that the impact of these interventions has been limited. Not much has changed. Why do you think that is? Uh, Such a good question, Rochelle. I mean, in some ways, you know, um, we've done really important work, uh, Mm -hmm. Indy and I, but we, we also have been a little upside down in the work. We've, in many ways in student affairs, I mean, so many of your listeners know we're, we're almost begging a system to change as opposed to the system coming to student affairs say, and saying, I want to change. Mm-hmm. And so I know this research gets called a lot. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the kind of histories of white supremacy in historically white, and I say white and doodly spaces, mm-hmm. um, that are most universities, unless it's an HBC or HSI, um, you know, there hasn't been a clear mandate to address white supremacy. So what I found is it's not that the DEI work doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's that actually at the very top, uh, middle and on the ground, we don't always have the people that are all in in the same direction. And so in student affairs, we're constantly working against uh, white supremacy, cisgender supremacy, able-bodied supremacy, male supremacy. And then, and then we do these interventions and we study them and we're like, oh, that didn't have the impact I hope it, hoped it did. Well, when you don't have everyone in, that's going to be an issue. If you think about just admissions, you know, you know, everyone's in on getting a new class in, right? And so it happens. And I think one of the things we learned this last year during COVID-19 and the multiple pandemics of racism, sexism, and so much more is that we learned that university administrators, we met at 7 a.m. We were meeting at 8 p.m. We were meeting daily, multiple times a day to tackle, quote unquote, COVID-19. That's right. If we studied that, related to dismantling white supremacy, we're going to be good. But that's not where our studies have really um, tracked in, uh, in our field. You know, I, I said something similar um, to someone. I said, universities, in a sense, played themselves when they responded so completely, so thoroughly, so systematically to COVID-19. You know, all units were involved. Every, so now we know it can happen. Yeah. So when there's a will, there's a way, you know, so, hey, you know, something I noticed about your work, much of your work has focused not only on the systemic stuff, and I'm going to come back to that, but it's focused on healing, racial healing, um, oppression, healing and liberation. How is that different from some of the traditional DEI approaches that we have been seeing in combating racism or how is it similar? Yeah, I love that question, Rochelle, because 
I mean, if we think about, you know, historically white institutions, one of the things we know is that it was black student activists, young people who were suing universities to gain access, right? And so a lot of times we're doing DEI work ahistorically. And so we, we're not grounded in black liberation and black student advocacy and young people's advocacy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not open to that reverse mentoring. So for me, when I think about DEI, we're, we're often... Uh, doing social justice work, we we strive to do that. We want to do it well. And a lot of times we are. But when it's social justice, I do find it's almost this debate about how much and if we can do it and if it's actually part of our job. Right. I think liberation is a bigger goal than social justice. Social justice advocacy is a part of that. But liberation, you know, if white supremacy harms BIPOC folks, Black, Indigenous folks of color, we know that white folks are also acting out of their wounds, their wounds of supremacy, of course, right? Uh, but for me, we if we don't have that conversation about our field is grounded in Black student activism, which means we have to care and be, our ultimate goal has to be Black liberation. It just has to be. Nothing else will make sense in our work unless everything we do is kind of moving in that direction. That's the birthright of our profession, of our, yeah, of yeah. when we do DEI work. But I think the other piece around healing is that, you know, whether it's Black student activists then or now in 2021, or other BIPOC student activists or BIPOC professionals or white anti-racist student affairs Mm -hmm. professionals. We're often, our jobs are about helping other people Mm -hmm. and we're really good at that. But we often forget that we've internalized a lot of the the same toxicity. And so I really think the H word is important. Healing, it's not like something that happens in a moment. It's not one act, but again, as we kind of position ourselves towards liberation, we start to be able to reclaim parts of ourselves that we actually cut off a long time ago, way before we got to student affairs, often when we were little, when we were young, little Rochelle and little Annalise who learned that, you know, really to survive in a white, straight, cis, able-bodied world, what did we have to change or cut off from ourselves? So DEI work, I think it has to be grounded in Black liberation, but it has to have an aim of wholeness for all of us. It's just true. For instance, you know, white student affairs professionals, administrators are just not going to have access to their wholeness unless they have the history of the roots of DE&I, because we'll be confused about Black liberation if you don't know that. But also what that very personal connection is, what it, what it means to move through our lives and not care about those things. So I hope that makes sense. But I think traditional approaches are like, oh, let's support this one group that has marginalization. But as we look at that group that is experiencing the marginalization, often folks of color, queer and trans folks, disabled folks, we're looking away from the supremacies that are setting up the culture that creates the push out, that creates the harm. So it's almost like we've got to, as student affairs professionals, train ourselves to like identify many different directions at once under the umbrella of we're doing this higher ed thing because we care about liberation for all people. So I have lots of strong opinions on that, Uh, but that's some of the research we don't see. We don't see the research where we want it to be. Right. I think that that's such a key point. Um, It's similar to me in that we were talking about um, 
competence, multicultural competence, the work that I do, I do with Amy and all of this stuff and lots of other people that came out of the work in um, counseling psychology, talking about multicultural competence. And then my field, it almost shifted on a dime and started saying, well, let's talk about social justice. But they still didn't have the competence. You know, we just have the new language. And so it's like that. We want to now focus on structures and systems, which I absolutely, to my core, believe we need to be focusing on my work yes. on organizational development. We have to change structures and systems. But, um, and, and I have this quote of yours that I thought was just so powerful. If we really want to change the world, if we, we need to dig into our own healing from oppression and injustice. Only then can we begin to interrogate the systems and structures that maintain these inequities. And that's exactly what you were just saying, that we need this racial healing and liberation before we can even begin to tear down these structures because we can't see them. Yeah, they're inside of us. We're soaking in them. And in institutions, you know, we're in buildings that have names of white men and other people who've done a lot of harm. There are those mm -hmm. macroaggressions, there are environmental racial microaggressions as well. But then you're right. I mean, if, if we don't have that clear kind of compass of why we do the work, it's easy to get lost and it's really easy to get frustrated. I mean, I know people have a lot of feelings about Dr. King and I do too. And I think, you know, he said something very important in a speech to the American Psych Association in the 60s. He said, you in psychology, you have this really important word, maladjusted. Mm -hmm. Use it all the time. Like in psychology, at that time, it was like helping people adjust, which meant helping people adjust to a white individual kind of mental health, right? And he said, actually, we should always be maladjusted to the madness of militarism, to oppression, to racial injustice, to things that take luxuries uh, from the poor and give it to, you know, the privilege. So I, I call Dr. King's quote in kind of what you're saying, because, you know, Black liberation is important. Liberation for all people is important. I, I personally think if we're working to build a world that is supportive of Black liberation, we're, we're working for liberation of all people. But if we haven't made that personal connection of how we've internalized anti-Blackness, how we've internalized like anti-transness or just so many other um, toxic stereotypes and messages, we haven't really slowed down to think about what that does in our body. And I, I do think we'll find over time, we, we know from the neurobiology of racism, for instance, that for white folks, it creates a lot of numbing. Mm -hmm. You know, when you saw the, um, you know, the film of Jarek Siobhan murdering George Floyd, that's one thing. A lot of us, especially in Black communities, but in a lot of communities, don't want to watch, right? right. But, you know, Resma Menachem, one of my mentors, he recut the video and it only focused on Derek Chauvin's face for that entire time. And you see the numbing, you right. see the indifference. And so when white folks heal, when they realize they have a race and that racism is internalized and white supremacy is real, then it is like, it's like getting your breath back. Right. Um, and I think for BIPOC folks, it's literally, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's about time. Um, Right. So yeah, I think this is stuff we've got to keep talking about in DEI work because we're missing some of our roots. And that, that's very common across a lot of disciplines, actually. Sure. In, in psychology, we believe that William James started psychology and it's, it's an utter lie. He coined the phrase. Right. But psychology had to 
be birthed and mental health had to be birthed in the continent of Africa. That's where all people came from. And that's just the story. We don't have it all, but when we seek to reclaim that story and, and tell the whole truth of history, then we become whole and we heal again. And that's a lot of what's in the racial healing handbook is Mm -hmm. very specific steps and practices that we can use every day to keep us anchored in that goal of liberation. I am so glad you brought up the book, (laughs) racial healing handbook. Um, I absolutely love this book. One of the primary reasons why I was excited to talk to you today. You know, during this last year, I used your book in two different ways. In the fall, in my multicultural competence and change class that I teach in student affairs, um, I used that with my students. And we used it as a beginning to understand social justice and oppression and healing, racial healing and liberation. And it was really a fantastic experience for me to watch my students go through with that. The second thing that I'm really excited about is my program faculty have been using it as a part of our discussions on becoming a anti-racist program and helping us to have these deep conversations where we meet in both racial affinity groups and then come together um, as a as a larger group, a multi, multi-racial group of faculty to begin these conversations. Not always easy. Sometimes it's really hard and difficult and want to quit but we keep coming back because we believe that this gets us through and allows us to then start thinking about ways to be different so I am really thankful for this book but for those who don't know it why don't you um tell uh tell our listeners what prompted you to write this book at this time and what you hope that this book can contribute to this anti-racism work and the healing and liberation that we all need. Yeah, thank you, Rochelle, for that question. I think uh, one of the reasons I wrote it is because, you know, I had done community organizing since I was young in racial justice and immigrant rights work, women's reproductive justice work, uh, HIV and AIDS. And I would find a very common story. Uh, you know, we'd be almost on the verge of some liberatory event or some success in our communities. And then there'd be like almost a tearing down within our movements. And I I went to seek a counseling and psychology degree because I thought that would help me understand why we did that to each other. Mm -hmm. And then when I got my counseling program, I was like, oh, I'm not getting the help I want. And so I went back and I started studying liberation movements and racial justice from pre-civil rights, abolition, all the way to um, Black Lives Matter and other racial liberation movements today. And I looked at the, whether it was the neurobiology of racism and just um, what we know about white supremacy and research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I knew from my own story as a mixed race, South Asian, and I say white adjacent person, uh, because I definitely benefit from what people kind of project onto me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes I'll call myself a racial Rorschach, because I, I, I'm very clear that I know who I am racially. And then people will project onto me what they need me to be in that moment. And so, that's happened my whole life. And so I grew up with a dark-skinned Indian Sikh turban-wearing father and a white mother from the South. And, you know, I saw her passivity and her confusion when my dad would be called a terrorist. And, you know, he experienced physical and verbal violence regularly. And I saw his um, inability to really say what was happening to him because it was so traumatic, right? Mm-hmm. These things would happen and I'd witness them as a young person or I would be the target sometimes. Like mm-hmm. I'd be called the N-word or, you know, 
a neighbor or, you know, just I'd see things happening. And my dad wasn't able either as a immigrant to this country say, Annalise, this is white supremacy. And so I think for my whole life, I had been searching for that why. I knew my dad happened to teach at Xavier University and HBCU. And I knew as a young, young child, when I was in a HBCU environment, my dad wasn't being called a terrorist. That mm-hmm. I wasn't in danger. But when we stepped out into white community in New Orleans, that's when it would happen. And so I think um, I've gone in this journey and the practices that I've written about are really ones that I use every day uh, because I want to move beyond surviving mm-hmm. as a person of color. I, I do want to be in thriving and I do believe that all of the freedom fighters and racial justice movements have fought for this moment. They've dreamed of us. Our ancestors have dreamed of this moment of us actually having this conversation and then making these commitments. It's not that we're not on the streets anymore. It's just like liberation is a very inside job. And, you know, Rosa Parks knew that she did yoga and asana. I mean, there are so many people in the racial liberation movements who knew that there was something really important about nourishment, about building trust and about actually healing from racial trauma so that we're not continuing to enact the wounds as a white person, you know, acting out of the wombs of numbing and then enacting white supremacy or in being an agent, or as a person of color, as a BIPOC person, acting out of our own internalized racism, or and or the distrust that we can have of our own selves. So I think the most powerful DEI work we can do on our campuses is really when we create spaces where people do learn to trust themselves. They learn more about their fullness of their identities and about history. You know, as I said earlier, everything about racism and white supremacy and cisgenderism, it will just be confusing unless you know about history. So that was probably a long answer. (laughs) I wrote the book for a lot of reasons. (laughs) It was a great answer. You know, and I think about those things and I think about the timing because as healing, uh, you know, we have gone through a very difficult period. It's not to say that there weren't other difficult periods or that we won't be going through more difficult periods in the future. But there is something unique about this period, at least in my lifespan. I am hearing from so many um, BIPOC folks in particular who are talking about the incredible stress that they're under, feeling um, that their body is letting them down that they're having issues with panic attacks or, or high blood pressure at a time, um, heart responses at a time that they have never experienced before. And um, talking to psychologists and physicians are saying, turn off the news, get off social media because there's so much coming in and we're pushing it down. And so there's, and so when you were mentioning some of the, the healing ways, the, the healing that Rosa Parks knew, to do because you can't keep giving it out, you know, without it affecting you internally and figuring out some ways of responding. So I loved that, that you're focusing on healing because we need it, right? We, it is needed. So. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I think, you know, some of that goes directly back to my training in traumatology. So I had the um, real honor of not only, you know, being in student affairs environments, but also being able to talk openly about healing and wellness. You know, I don't think we're always able to do that in our DEI work. It's more like ingesting 
our banking, like concepts, structures, ideas, words, all important. But um, I think what we really are needing is, for instance, is it about a good queer and trans 101, you know, a good 101 on white supremacy? Or is it kind of thinking about like what you learned about your own gender and sexuality as a cisgender or straight person that doesn't suit you as a white person, <clears throat> how you were, may have been taught to, to numb to the impacts of white supremacy. And how does that feel to have that numbness in your body? And so I think racial trauma is, um, you know, it's, the field of epigenetics actually says that, you know, trauma goes back 14 generations. Resma Menachem, who wrote a fabulous book called My Grandmother's Hands, talks about that. And so you can kind of think like a lot of the things we're trying to process in our body, we may be, we may be in a DEI training, but what we're really trying to process in our body is like kind of getting these toxic and unhelpful ideas about who we are and the labels that we use um, to get that kind of literally off of our hearts. I mean, as you were saying before, for BIPOC folks, it kills us. And um, I'll go back and say that I do believe that our freedom finding ancestors did fight for this moment for us to not only have this conversation, but to live. Mm -hmm. There's so much of what we've learned over the last year in, since the murder of Trayvon Martin um, and the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is really just an extension of the civil rights movement, right? Um, and abolition. As we've learned that we've got to talk about black and brown death, but they're metaphorical deaths that we see in our, our higher ed kind of units and, and settings. And so how do we create higher education environments where black and brown people get to live, where they, right. we get life. And so I think that it goes back to your question about DEI research and if it works or if anything's changing, I think if our interventions are really centered on BIPOC life, then we're probably heading in a good direction. Well, that, that just really moves me into this other question I wanted to ask you, um, that so much of this DEI work seems to be centered and it seems to be white centered, you know, helping white people to understand how, And I think that that's important work, but it doesn't really allow for the healing and liberation of BIPOC folks. And in some ways, it prevents BIPOC folks from seeing themselves in the work. I was even looking at a review of your book online on Amazon and someone wrote, well, you know, as a BIPOC person, I was really excited to read this and it's not about me at all. I'm thinking, I've been reading this book and working it with two different groups, my students and I, and I see me all in it, but I have to be willing to be, to get in there and acknowledge that pain and how I respond to it. So, you know, um, I think your book does that well. What do we need to do to change that focus? Yeah, I, well, first of all, Rochelle, you're exactly right. That a lot of DEI work, just as you know about multicultural competency, the birth of that work was really to help white folks know how to work with BIPOC folks. And so what we were left with in student affairs and counseling and other environments is, you know, BIPOC folks, we didn't have competencies about how to work with white folks. <laughs> what happens when there are microaggressions in our, our work setting? And so, you know, DEI efforts are constantly working with folks who have privilege. And that is important yep. to some extent. 
But, you know, I go back to Bell Hooks, her, her work, her work, um, center the margins. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, she's given us the liberation equation in just a few words that if we center the liberation of BIPOC folks, then we've got to have black healing spaces. We've got to have Latinx empowerment spaces and not just the student organization or party, you know, it's actually, uh, creating environments and asking folks like, what do you need? What is missing? And not only putting those answers on the backs of BIPOC folks to answer. I mean, there should be places we can give feedback and input, um, but it is, it is creating spaces that I would say are safer for us as BIPOC people to look at what we've internalized. I remember there was a time I was in Atlanta. I'd been in Atlanta for like five years and like living in the black Mecca, right? It's, there's a lot I can say about the black Mecca of Atlanta. It's not the black Mecca. It's the black Mecca in numbers, but not in terms of economic advancement, housing, and a lot of other things. But regardless, I'm living in the black Mecca. I've been there for five years and all my doctors were white. Mm -hmm. I was like, and it just hit me one day and I was like, oh my gosh, what? It, it just happens. It's so insidious. And so I had to get busy at like reconnecting, reorganizing my life and making sure I had excellence in my life, in my healthcare. And um, I share that story only to say that, you know, those moments when we as BIPOC folks, whether we're Black or non-Black folks of color, it is painful for us to look at what we've internalized. You know, I try to look at that all the time. Where is the next layer of anti-Black racism I've internalized? How do I heal from that? Not for Black folks, but for my own humanity. When I do that, it's going to make a world better uh, and uh, help me work for Black liberation. But I, the other thing I would say is that um, if you look at racial identity development, um, one of the things you'll find in the racial identity development of people of color is that, you know, when we experience racism, we try to tell white folks or other people really white folks about it and that we're not believed Mm -hmm. and then we get pissed and we need to set boundaries and I call it the I can't trust white folks uh kind of schema and racial identity development but we don't always we're usually like yeah we get that space we've been in that schema but we don't often talk about what does that do to us as humans right there's some heartbreak there that's so deep Like the fact that I grew up with a white mother who wasn't able to name racism and yet she, she was so courageous in so many other ways. And in terms of how she stood by my father's side and how we had strong black uh, communities that we were, we were safer in Mm -hmm. Um, what she taught me about like the inability to act in dismantling white supremacy that is incredibly painful to look at and incredibly important. And then I think for all BIPOC people, a lot of times in student affairs and other settings, we're busy advocating for other people and we're creating safer spaces for them. Mm-hmm. But what about our space? What about our needs? What, what part of ourselves do we have to put away when we leave our homes to go to work to adjust to a white space? That demands a space for exploration and healing so we can actually push against that we know we're surviving we know why we do it and we know why the most painful thing for us to talk about as BIPOC people is when we align with white supremacy right and when we don't challenge it and then we carry home that guilt and that pain and that shame and it's not 
ours. We didn't create it. And yet we're questioning ourselves. So I think your question is really important because it really demands that we think about, um, are we doing DE&I work for white folks? Are we doing it because we actually have folks that we need to center to make sure that if these folks have empowering, liberating space, then actually our whole community has that as well. Right. You know, we're seeing that in numbers. I think historically Black colleges this year, um, uh, well, for this coming year, their um, applications to the campuses have skyrocketed. There are more people who are saying, I can't be on these campuses. There are tons of people um, in the Twitterverse saying things like DEI work is all about white people. I want no parts of it. This is why it's not working. And you understand the sentiment, but we realize that we've got to make these changes. Now, you don't have to make them today. That's okay. Somebody's got your back. I'll pick it up today. Somebody else needs to pick it up tomorrow. But it's got to happen in these spaces, and it doesn't have to be you making that happen. You know, when you're protecting yourself, needing a different kind of space, um, that's okay, right? I do look at safe spaces, though, and it makes me nuts because I've often said I've never felt safe. You know, you still have to stand out there and you risk what you're going to say in the space that you're going to say it. You try to say it in a way that you're proud of the way you said it when you when you go home. You know, I said it in a way that was honest so that it could be heard. But at the same time, I know I wasn't safe saying it. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that gut check. And, and so, um, yeah, I think it's just probably a conversation we'll be having in student affairs for the rest of our professional lives, because if you kind of look back Mm -hmm. at kind of the evolution, I love that, you know, about organizational development, because you know, we started off as these segregated places and universities, then we became more passively tolerant. That's right. And then we became more quote unquote multicultural. And then we're at this place where, okay, are we going to be passive and tolerate and be multicultural? Are we actually going to connect to liberation and say, oh, this is the way, and this is the path. And maybe that path we were on was making it okay for white folks to have BIPOC folks in the environment, as opposed to BIPOC folks being a standard defining element and uh, having input to whether an environment is actually quote unquote safe, safer, whatever words we want to use. I mean, that's the work of abolition, right? Is that... I think uh, as we look back at our histories in student affairs and in DEI, I think this is where right now we're having a really important conversation about reparations, about um, really, you know, what harm our universities have done and how we might repair. And there's so many, to me, I'm excited about this conversation. I know it's scary for a lot of white folks. It's going to be okay. Um, but if we can act in the ways we've acted to address COVID as a nation, yep. we can address what we have done in this country we now call the United States yep. to descendants of the East Atlantic slave trade. It's, the time is overdue. And so to me, that is the work in student affairs and DEI that I, you feel it on campus, even in a virtual environment. It's coming, it's been here. And the conversation is going to continue to escalate until I think we finally deal with it. And when we address reparations, I think then we will start to see 
DEI work that's not banking. That's not about like only like teaching you a few new words, um, but you'll really see the transformation of our environments and of higher education. I am here for it. I'm ready for it. We're all working for it. Right. And I think people think that's going to be a smooth transition. It's not. There's going to be frustration and disappointment and pain and hurt and fear. And if we can push through it, we know that when we push through that, we can get to a better space and the better space is coming. It has to. There's too many people saying now. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I think student affairs professionals, I always see us as like the heartbeat of a university. Like we know where the pain is, but we know where the hope and liberation lives. Like I just came for an event that was BIPOC, LGBTQ plus, disabled faculty and staff. And we danced, we hugged, we loved on each other and we nourished each other. And, (laughs) and, you know, that's going to keep us going for a long time. But it's really the white folks that are going to need to get into those DEI trainings and teach one another right. and be accountable and, and find ways to, I love that you've created those racial affinity groups in your teaching uh, because many people haven't had an experience of that. And if you haven't had an experience of that, you really don't understand what it's like to work with, if you're white, work with other white folks to dismantle racism, or if you're non-black folks of color to look at, oh gosh, like we experience our own racism and now we've internalized this And then Black folks, I mean, there's a ton of Black pride and Black joy and Black brilliance. I'm here for all that. And still Black folks experience like utter pain and and, uh, internalized self-doubt, like all that stuff. Um, Imagine people come to be with us for four years, for six years, for seven years. And by the time they leave, you know, the thing we know that's going to happen is they're going to go into the world called the United States of America, maybe somewhere international, which is great. And they're going to experience more of the same. But what if when they came to be with us, they actually learned how to have the conversations. They started learning what liberation felt like, like deep down in our bones, Mm -hmm. uh, that they got a felt sense of, of this work that they could never shake out of their bodies and that they didn't even know they needed. Right. That's the DEI work we've got to be heading towards. And I get so excited thinking about that world. I want to live in that world. And, you know, today at that event, I did get to live in that world. And so we and know what it's to create like. that world, co-create that world. But that's something really amazing. You know, Annalise, you and I can do this all night, <laughs> you know, and I would love that opportunity. But I think we're coming close to the time when we need to end. And so I'm wondering if there were some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners, something else that you didn't get quite a chance to say or something you'd like to expand upon. Yeah, uh, thanks, Rochelle. I think, number one, I think in racial healing, racial justice, DEI work, all the work we do in student affairs, it's so important to tell the truth. Hmm. A lot of times we have we kind of bend over backwards or we try to, you know, kind of become a pretzel to make things okay for senior administrators, for whoever, a parent, a student, you know, but I think if we can tell the truth and continue to tell the truth that this is something we haven't gotten yet, we're trying to figure it out. And it's so important. We don't know exactly how racial liberation works, but we're going to 
go for it. Yeah. Uh, we have a we have a sense of what it's like on campus when it's actually experienced by BIPOC students, faculty, and staff, and that when you come into our communities, you're going to experience possibly some disorientation. Um, isn't that what we tell new community members about <laughs> things all the time? You know, you're going to come to college. <laughs> Know, learn new things about yourself and you're going to grow and it's going to be hard. Well, you're going to come to our campus and you're going to talk about racism and you're going to get sad and angry and defensive. And then maybe you're going to start to really imagine that world that we in student affairs weren't even trying to imagine when we were in grad school or like even last year uh, that we're going to dream build together uh, this campus, this community. Um, where we can actually be who we truly are. Um, I think when we do this work, we get to know each other's families, we get to know each other's strengths, our growing edges. And so that would just be the final thing I, I would say is tell the truth. Don't carry other people's water for them. Carry your own, <laughs> do your own individual work. And when you get worried about how to give other people feedback on racism and other systems of oppression, ask yourself how you would, want that feedback mm -hmm. do you want it in little spoonfuls or bite-sized pieces or big chunks like I think having a lot of cultural humility in the work is so important yeah. well, thank you so much Rochelle for tonight it's always good to spend time with you and yeah I just thank really appreciate you. your work no, in the world seriously thank you this has been so amazing I am so grateful for your time today Annalise and I know that your calendar has been and your overwhelming. So I really appreciate you making yourself available and um, sharing this time with me and with our listeners. And folks, I'm telling you, if you have not um, picked up the Racial Healing Handbook, do that. It's, it, it's, it's sort of life-changing. And Annalise's other book, a newer book, the Queer and Trans Resilience Workbook. I'm saying pick them both up, check them out. Um, for our listeners, just to remind you, you can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Student Affairs Now newsletter or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Please subscribe to the podcast, invite others to subscribe, share on social, or leave a five-star review. It really helps conversations like this reach more folks and build a learning community. Again, I'm Rochelle Pope. Thanks again to the amazing, amazing Annalise Singh and to everyone who is watching or listening. What's next?